Welcome to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sachs. Uh, we are very, very fortunate uh, to have the co-authors of uh, what is, I think, going to be the number one uh, best-selling book in America in the next uh, couple of days. Uh, I Alone Can Fix It, Donald J. Trump's Catastrophic Final Year, Carol Lennig and Philip Rucker, both Pulitzer Prize winners, uh, join me on the podcast today. Carol, Phil, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Charlie. It's great to be here with you. It's our pleasure. I just, I just want to say just up, up front for, for people who um, are thinking, well, I've read a lot of excerpts of the book and I lived through that catastrophic year, uh, so uh, I, I don't necessarily need to read the book. No, you do actually read, need to read the book. This is one of those moments. And, and I, I, I want to ask you about this a little bit later. You know, we've lived this. We think that we know it, but there's so much going on. It happens so fast. Putting it into context, getting the texture of the moments in the interplay is extraordinarily in, in, interesting. And and this last year, I, I don't know how you feel about it, but I, 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 you know, up until now, I thought of, you know, sort of 1968 as being the iconic year when everything happened, this extraordinary moment where all the planets collided. I think 2020 is going to be remembered the same way. Do you do you, do you agree, uh, Carol? You know, I do think um, it is what compelled Phil and I, after being exhausted writing the first book about Trump's presidency. A very we, stable genius, also yeah. a bestseller. Um, you know, we did not intend to come back and write another book because we felt like we really captured what motivated the man and the the chaotic elements of his impulses and the danger to the country. But 2020 turned out to be, you know, one for the record books, one for the epic books. Um, and, and we felt really like like it would be, it would be malpractice in our in our world not to, as you say, come back, look deeper, and make sense of it. Now there are a ton of revelations in this book mm-hmm. that that gobsmacked Phil and me when we sat down for these interviews with people when they told us what they experienced in real time. We were just amazed, you know, things like um, learning that. Donald Trump was really happy as he watched the television on January 6th, mm-hmm. learning learning that he was fine with the crimes that were literally being committed, which is trespassing on federal property and and um, and starting a riot on a Capitol uh, ground. And we learned he was um, also absolutely dismissive of the danger to Americans and their health. He was focused exclusively over and over again on, you know, keeping the COVID numbers down, even if it meant keeping Americans um, at sea in China and not bringing them back from Wuhan. He was fine with Americans being in danger uh, across the country, as long as he could keep spilling and spreading this happy talk that the virus really wasn't that serious. So, Phil, this is actually the first question that I was going to ask you was you have lived covering Donald Trump for the last four or five years. You've written a definitive book about Donald Trump, you know, a very stable genius. So that that that, that was my, my question is, were there any surprises, you know, as you wrote this book? As somebody that has lived and breathed the Trump presidency, what what were for you the biggest surprises? And Carol's mentioned a few. Yeah, you know what surprised me 
the most. And, and you're right about living and breathing it. I, you know, was in on so many of those press conferences and traveling around the world with him and, and felt like we had a front row seat to what was happening. And yet when Carol and I did this deeper excavation after he left office and sat down for hours at a time with cabinet members and, and some of his senior most advisors to peel back the curtain, we realized things were so much worse than we even knew in the moment. I mean, they're, they're as bad as we imagined. Um, the degree to which the president had to be restrained by his advisors, the degree to which uh, the leaders of the military feared a coup, the uh, extent to which he was willing, he, the president, was willing to uh, demean and malign and discredit uh, government scientists and medical experts and the people on the front lines actually trying to rescue this country from a pandemic. Um, it was startling and jaw-dropping to hear the anecdotes of what was really happening in the Oval Office and and behind the scenes, uh, even for us. And and we thought we knew it all. I mean, we had been yeah. we had been frontline reporters, living it and breathing it, and and yet it was so much worse. And 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 that's the experience of reading the book as as well. Um, obviously, you know, we've written and talked about this on a daily basis, but the the details are truly extraordinary. One of the things that that I think uh, is really you know fascinating is the fact that Donald Trump uh, agreed to talk with you, and that uh, you and Carol went down uh, to Mar-a-Lago, and you spent more than two hours sitting. Uh, sitting in the lobby of of of, of his club, talking with him, uh, and 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 asked him about. I want to play this because um, you, you you asked him about January sixth and his thoughts about the election, and this is worth listening to. It, it it runs about four minutes, but it really gives you a sense of what the former president of the United States, what you know, how his mind works, what he thinks about it, uh, and the stories he continues to tell himself and others. So th this is from your interview, which you uh, posted on the Washington Post uh, website today. Well, what did you hope they would do when you said, go up there and stop this? Well, thing? I heard that people wanted to go down to, you know, that wasn't my rally per se. That was, there were a lot of people that spoke. Yeah, yeah. They had rallies the night before. They had speakers all over the city. You had hundreds of thousands of people. I would venture to say, I think it was the largest crowd I've ever spoken before. It went from that point, which is almost at the White House, to beyond the Washington Monument. It was, and, and wide. And, um, but if you could have waited. And, it, and it was a loving crowd, too, by the way. There was a lot of love. I've heard that from everybody. Many, many people have told me that was a loving crowd. And, uh, you know, it was, it was too bad. It was too bad that, that got, uh, you know, that they did. There were just some. But, from my state. There's in some plenty places. of tape on that too, in you know, because they, the Capitol Police were, that's the way it is. Um, but I wanted, I mean, personally, what I wanted is what they wanted. They showed up um, just to show support because I happen to believe the election was rigged at a level like nothing has ever been rigged before. Uh, there's tremendous proof 
There's tremendous proof. Statistically, it wasn't even possible that he won. I mean, things such as if you win Florida and Ohio and Iowa, there's never been a loss. There was a and loss. did you need better lawyers? Because they, they took it to court, but they didn't no, give I enough evidence judges. to convince the judges. I needed better judges. Uh, the Supreme Court was afraid to take it. Don't forget, if, if you take all of the, everything out, take all of the dead people that voted, and there were thousands of them, by the way. We have lists of, you know, obituaries that said, if you take the illegal immigrants that voted, if you take this, if the Indians that got paid to vote in different places, you know, we had Indians getting paid to vote. Many, many different things. All election changing, not just, you know, 12 people. I mean, all, because they were all very close. You know, the five, it's only in five places. Uh, if you take that, forget all of that. It's massive numbers, but forget all of that. If you take all of that, just look at one thing. The legislatures of the states did not approve all of the things that were done for those elections. And under the Constitution of the United States, they have to do that. And the Supreme Court, they didn't find fact. Don't forget, they didn't say, well, we disagree. They said, we're not going to hear the case. Uh, I'm very disappointed in the Supreme Court. What do you think they were afraid of? Uh, they, I guess they thought that it would be violent, maybe. And it was violent the other way, perhaps. I don't know. But I guess they thought that it would be violent. But the Supreme Court of the United States, in the Constitution, it says you can't, you can't have local politicians setting the rules. And they, they set the rules. Early voting, this voting, ballots, many, many different things. And these were Democrats going to Republican, with the exception of Nevada, which was a Democrat legislature. And by the way, they didn't even, they did for the most part approve, but they had things that they didn't approve. But the other ones had very little done, almost nothing. So they were setting illegally all of these rules, regulations, everything. Poll watchers who were absolutely brutalized and thrown out. We had no poll watchers allowed in buildings for days. Okay. It was an illegal, corrupt election, as bad as a third world country. Okay. So with that, the judges just would not, they would not rule. We had... Well, well can I one more beat on that? If you had bad judges, that's like 86 bad judges. Were they afraid? Were they... Some of them were people you appointed. Um, no, that's true. I'm not saying. I appointed him, and I was very disappointed in them. So there he was. He was very disappointed by the judges. Um, you you were on CNN yesterday, and uh, Anderson Cooper said this was like listening to drunk Nixon just going and spinning his story. So, Carol, I guess, what was your reaction as you're sitting there watching Donald Trump tell, you know, spin this this this, you know, this, this web of Trumpian, you know, sort of lies about the election and his spin on January 6th. What, what, was, what was your reaction talking to him, hearing this? There were times then it was very difficult for, for Phil and for me to kind of keep a, a straight poker face. You know, we wanted desperately to hear his version of events. We had no idea how invested he was in a, a kind of delusional alternate reality. Um, and I will say one thing that is kind of 
is, is amazing to me as an investigative reporter is uh, I feel like you can always tell when you're sitting down for an interview, the things that people know that they're kind of fudging and mm-hmm. stretching, you can, there are little physical tells and it's part of what makes it important to be an investigative reporter is to te- is to detect that Donald Trump from his stem to his stern, from his nose to his toes is completely committed hmm. to these series of lies. His physicality co- tells you, this snake oil is a miracle drug. This lie I am telling you, the election was rigged. Uh, as he said, Indians were paid to vote. And that is part of the reason I, I unfairly was mm-hmm. robbed of my victory. Um, dead people voted. He says these things with such commitment. Um, I don't know that is commitment the same as belief. Okay, he's committed (laughs) to selling the con, but does he believe it himself? You know, Charlie, (laughs) I've got to tell you, it is amazing because the degree to which he can sell it, um, I think, must answer the question of why Mm -hmm. he is such an excellent campaigner. But even his inside aides, even his most ardent supporters inside the White House and in his cabinet, they don't even know for sure whether he believes it, has been slowly convinced of it, or just knows it's a great storyline. As Phil and I learned you know, it, at least right after the election, he he was pretty sure he lost. Mm-hmm. He was asking a, a very close confidant, dang, why do you think we lost? But as time has gone by, and certainly by the time we met with him in late March at Mar-a-Lago at his estate and club, um, he had hardened that internal narrative and he is selling it hard around the country. So, Phil, your, your your take on this as well. I mean, the book makes it very clear the 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 evolution of all this, and a lot of people around the president after the election were thinking, "Okay, give him a little bit of space, give him a little bit of time." They understood that it was bullshit. Um, many of the more responsible, you know, folks just completely bailed on all of this, and yet now this has become. I mean, this has become the version, right? This has become now the the litmus test, conventional wisdom in the entire Republican Party, and you're sitting there listening to this font of this font of uh, delusion. I don't know how else you want to describe it, but uh, you, you, your, your take on this. Yeah, Charlie, it is breathtaking to see yeah. how the big lie has evolved and become uh, become really gospel for so many Republicans. And not just, you know, a, a select few hardcore MAGA supporters, but tens of millions of Republican voters around the country. And in turn, uh, many, if not most, of the elected Republicans in the Congress uh, who believe Trump's election fraud delusions, who uh, who increasingly feel like January sixth was not uh, was not the horrific uh, riot siege deadly event that we all witnessed on television, but but rather something more minor. It's just incredible, and it speaks to the political power of Donald Trump. You know, he's no longer president, no longer in office, and yet from Mar-a-Lago or, you know, this summer from his golf course in Bedminster, New Jersey, he remains king of Republican politics. And, you know, we saw that firsthand when we were interviewing him as uh, as congressman came to, to literally kiss the ring. Uh, but this power is going to continue. And it, it 
it explains, I think, the news we're seeing in Washington this week, the uh, revolt among some Republicans to the January 6th uh, investigation mm-hmm. commission and the, the reluctance among the leadership of the Republican Party to do that fulsome, thorough probe of what actually happened. Well, you know, as as you describe, and again, this is a, an account of the whole catastrophic final year, you know, including his his COVID handling and all the people telling him he ought to wear masks and and that whole amazing story. You know, some of the excerpts that from your book that have gotten the most attention deal with the the fear of a military coup and uh, and Mark Milley's concerns about all of this. Um, What's very, very clear here are the number of people who were very, very close to this White House who were shocked and appalled and alarmed by what was happening. Very few of them have spoken out publicly. Is that changing? I mean, they spoke to you. They told you these stories. But I mean, you know, given the moment we're in right now where they're sitting in the Oval Office watching the implosion of this presidency, how close we came to real catastrophe and knowing that he may be running again, or, or do you, you know, explain to me the sort of the mentality of people who were part of this, saw this, were horrified by it, but are not willing to speak publicly about it. Either one of you can handle you know, one. You know, there were, there were two things going on, Charlie, that Phil and I learned as we sat down with so many people with a frontline view. Remember, we interviewed more than 140 senior advisors to the president, cabinet members, political advisors, friends, the true inside the room folks. And some of them were frightened of Donald Trump, what he could do to them. They'd witnessed the way he had ruined people's reputations when they crossed him. They'd witnessed him, as as one person said, ripping the face off of cabinet members who crossed him. Remember in our book, Mark Esper, the Secretary of Defense, literally gets yelled at like a child in a room full of senior officials of the government with the president furious at him that he has um, said that he doesn't support invoking the Insurrection Act. The president at the top of his voice is roaring, you know, you, you undermine me, you're insubordinate, you, you, you usurped my authority, you have no right. I mean, at the top of his lungs, and a lot of other words that I can't repeat on your show. So people had seen that kind of viciousness. But also people were afraid of, of speaking out because what if they were replaced by someone worse? What if a, a person who was not willing to be even a little bit of a bulwark replaced them? And they had witnessed that too. People ultimately agreed to speak with Phil and me because they were also thinking along the lines that you just articulated, history is not just history, it's current events. People need to understand what happened here. And once President Trump was out of office, they felt a little bit of relief to do so. Mm-hmm. I, w- I want to get to your minute-by-minute account of January 6th, because I, th- I think this book has the most detailed answer to the question of what was going on in the White House uh, during the attack on the Capitol. But I want to go back to the the, the real alarm about the, the, the coup. And, and you have a scene in the book that is really rather, I, I think, sheds a lot of light and explains why they were so concerned. So Mark Milley is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he was really concerned a, a, about a coup. 
And he was particularly focused, you can correct me if I'm if, if you think I'm exaggerating this or wrong, uh, focused on on a figure named Cash Patel, a name that is not a household name in, in America, but was a major player at the, this time. And you describe how he was concerned that this Cash Patel had been summoned back to Washington in early December. And, and he thought that he might be named either the director of the FBI or the head of the CIA. So, so tell me about who Cash Patel is and why Mark Milley would have been so alarmed by this prospect, Phil. Yeah, that's a great question. So Cash Patel, uh, you're right, not a household name, but has been a fixture in Trump world from the beginning of this administration. He's a hardline uh, Trump loyalist conservative uh, who had been a staffer to Congressman Devin Nunes uh, early in the administration and was involved in uh, in all of the intelligence matters in those early months and, and the, the leaking of information about Michael Flynn and, and so forth, enmeshed in that scandal. And then over the preceding couple of years, he held a number of positions uh, culminating in the final months of the administration in a very senior role at the Pentagon, at the Defense Department, and that alarmed Milley. And there apparently, uh, according to our reporting, was a plot underway after the election uh, to install Cash Patel as first as the deputy director of the CIA, and then they would force out Gina Haspel, the director of the CIA, and Cash Patel would automatically ascend to be the acting director of the CIA. You know, most objective observers would argue that Jesus Cash Patel Christ. does not have qualifications uh, to no. be the CIA director. But, you know, that's, but that's a choice the president can make. He can nominate, you know, Baron Trump if he wanted to be mm -hmm. the CIA director, acting director. Uh, so this alarmed Milley. And, and the reason why is because Milley thought if Trump were to try to execute a coup to hold on to power, he would need to get control of uh, what Milley told aides were the guys with the guns. Uh, that's the Defense Department, meaning the military, the CIA, and the FBI. And if Trump were to take out Haspel, take out Chris Ray, the FBI director, and install loyalists there, as well as a loyal yes man at the Pentagon, he could somehow gain control of, of a lot of the sort of armed forces, obviously, but also law enforcement forces in the, at the federal level in the country and, and apply them in a way uh, to stay in power and overturn the election results. And so that uh, was a very alarming moment for Milley. And he actually confronted Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, about this at the Army-Navy football game in December because he had heard Cash Patel was being called back to Washington to be offered this job. And he said to Meadows something along the lines of, you know, what the hell are you guys doing? I, I'm watching this, you know, basically to give him his warning, don't screw around here. This is serious stuff. And I've got my eyes on you. So let's talk about January 6th, because you really do have a, a minute by minute account of what happened. I, I think the clearest picture that I've ever gotten of what was happening both at the Capitol and at the White House. And you paint this really extraordinary picture of Mike Pence um, in the Capitol, not leaving, uh, taking command, while Donald Trump is watching this on television and at least initially is absolutely delighted about it. These are his people. And they were doing what he wanted them to do. So, so Carol, what, what, what's new in this book about yeah. what we know about January 6th? Well, there are some, you know, we, Phil and I chose to include things that shocked us. Um, and we figured they would shock readers too. Mm -hmm. There, 
there is just a harrowing series of moments for Vice President Pence. And like him or don't like him, he, uh, by all accounts, of by friends and by foes, was absolutely stubbornly determined to stay in the Capitol, despite the fact that uh, rioters had breached it, broken through the glass, were storming in by the by the hundreds and eventually the thousands, and wanted to kill him. <laughs> they were <laughs> chant- they were chanting for his head, mm-hmm. and when he was evacuated from the Senate floor with his daughter, his wife, his brother, and some of his aides, taken to a little. Uh, ceremonial office not far from the Senate floor. Outside his windows was the noose, the the faux noose with his name on it that rioters had brought that day. As he crossed that threshold into the room, scurried by his Secret Service agents, rioters were literally charging up the stairway to that second floor landing that he had just passed. I mean, it was a matter of seconds that... um, prevented him from being confronted by the rioters who, again, were chanting for his death. And as he is in that hideaway, allegedly at least partially safe, his detail leader from the Secret Service comes to him three times to say, we have got to get out of here. And each time, uh, Penn says, no, I'm staying. I'm not getting run off by these people. And I'm staying here to do my job to certify the election. Now, the third time that his detail leader comes to him, it's not a, it's not a question anymore. It's, I'm sorry, Mr. Vice President, we are leaving. Mm-hmm. And you've seen the video of, of that exit down a back stairwell. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, counter-assault agents on the Secret Service detail were basically clearing a path to make sure there was no riot group on their path down to a subterranean basement. It gets worse when they get to the basement. Um, Pence is urged by his detail leader to get inside the armored car that he normally travels in. But Pence turns to this person who he's entrusted his life to day after day for four years and says, no, I'm not getting in that car. I trust you, Tim, but other agents may drive that car out of here and I'm not leaving. Mm-hmm. So it's just, um, you know, I, I'm not going to say profile in courage, but it is a profile in determination. Well, also in leadership, because you describe him very sort of calmly uh, taking taking control and, you know, calling up the defense secretary and, you know, telling him to get troops down to the Capitol to secure it. You know, um, you know, insisting that he's going to finish the certification of the election um, that night, which which he did. And the contrast with Trump is interesting because I think one of the oof moments in your book is when you realize that. At no point was the president of the United States engaged in exercising his power to do anything about this. I mean, Phil, is that an overstatement that he was not in touch with the Department of of Defense or or with anybody in that chain of command telling them to do anything? That's exactly right, Charlie. And I would even argue it's an understatement. Uh, What we saw in our reporting uh, about January 6th for this book is that Trump uh, completely abdicated his responsibilities as commander in chief in that moment. Here, the country was in a crisis. The Capitol uh, was under siege, under threat. Democracy could have fallen. And the president did nothing. He watched television. Uh, He also didn't check in on the welfare of his vice president. Uh, 
Mike Pence, who had been so loyal to him for so many years, people were chanting, hang Mike Pence, and and Trump never called him, uh, never really inquired about his well-being, although he did ask one aide, how's Mike? That was about it. Um, he was just transfixed by the images on television and either unable or perhaps more likely unwilling uh, to step forward and and lead and, and oversee a federal uh, military and law enforcement response to gain control of the Capitol. You have some of these dazzling stories, you know, including um, Romney confronting two of his colleagues, Ron Johnson and Josh Hawley, and saying this is what you've caused. And of course, this now famous story about Liz Cheney brushing off uh, Jim Jordan, who was, uh, you know, trying to, you know, help her or something, you know, you know, take care of the female law lawmakers. And she smacked his hand away and said, get away from me. You fucking did. You fucking did this. And of course, that seems very timely today, given the fact that uh, Jim Jordan was supposed to be on that uh, that committee, and Nancy Pelosi is basically called BS, and uh, he's he's not on this. But but the the uh, the interaction between Liz Cheney and Jim Jordan um, is really kind of an extraordinary moment from that day. I thought. Well, we definitely agreed, um, <laughs> and and we were you know saddened in some respects, but also delighted to learn a fact about January 6th, what was really going on with those lawmakers. I mean, you you remember that day, they were scrambling for their lives, um, and their staff were left behind and barricading themselves in offices as people um, chanted through the halls and called for their heads. In that moment with Liz Cheney, what's so striking about it is that um, she feels so patronized by Jim Jordan. He is sort of acting like the hero and they're, they're in aisles sort of hunkered down. And he says, oh, the ladies, the ladies shouldn't be on the end of the aisles. Let's get them inside. And she is aghast. And she relays this story to uh, General Milley much later after the fact, basically laughing, saying, you know, I told him, you know, get the heck away from me. She smacked his hand. You know, you fucking did this. Imagine that moment, right? These lawmakers are in danger. And it's not, it's not a small danger. It's mortal danger. People have come in with, with weapons, with batons. They've taken flagpoles to police officers' chests. They've um, threatened people with more bear spray, climbing gear. They themselves have gas masks on. And what's so stunning is the lawmakers know that some people have encouraged this group to walk in these doors. And and they they come face to face that day in the aisle with Liz Cheney staring down Jim Jordan and with Mitt Romney staring down Josh Hawley um, and Ron Johnson. You know, the, the lies that they spread along with Donald Trump were the call and response that brought that mortal danger right to their, their home. Two of the things that I thought were, well, there were many, many surprising things in this book. One of them was, um, is your reporting that Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, considered resigning after January 6th, but was talked out of it by my Mark Milley. Um, Mike Pompeo has, you know, since, I don't know that he said anything publicly critical at all, but but at least privately, he was alarmed. But also um, the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, 
uh, threatened to resign along with all of his deputies on the night of January 6th. So why did none of these people actually resign? And tell me tell me about Pat Cipollone. I mean, what was going on? The, the White House counsel threatening to resign along with all of his deputies that night. What happened? Well, Charlie, that example was um, not only about the treatment of January 6th, but about the pardons that Trump uh, was considering for his family members. And, you know, that was just a, a step too far for the White House counsel, and not just for Pat Cipollone, but for his team uh, of deputies. And they were considering resigning en masse, which would have, of course, complicated the ability for the president to execute all of the pardons he wanted to do in those final days. Uh, you know, you mentioned Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State. Uh, he's a really interesting figure here because he had been a, a stalwart Trump loyalist yeah. and actually wants to run for president in 2024 and would very much like to inherit that Trump coalition. Uh, and yet he was so disturbed by Trump's handling in the aftermath of the election and especially his handling of January 6th that he uh, did, according to our reporting, consider resigning. We don't know how seriously he he thought about it, you know, whether he, he you know, on a scale of one to 10, where exactly he fell, but it was a consideration. And he actually, uh, between January 6th and the 20th, of the inauguration had daily morning check-in calls uh, with General Milley and with Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, where the three of them would compare notes. They would uh, talk about the president's state of mind. They would, uh, you know, look across the horizon at what where the trouble spots might be and what they should be concerned about and just make sure that all three of them, you know, one at the State Department, one at the Pentagon, one inside the West Wing, uh, were having full visibility into the dangers uh, and, and the landmines ahead. Well, let's also talk about uh, his uh, his handling of of coronavirus because I mean you could you could certainly make a case that um, Donald Trump might have been reelected, uh, might still be the president had it not been for the pandemic and his handling of the pandemic. Uh, so, Carol, uh, his his approach to masks I think is so uh, illustrative of of the whole issue that he was, according to your reporting urged um, by trusted folks over and over and over again, wear masks, wear the mask, it will save lives, and he just wouldn't do it. So talk to me about Donald Trump and masks and the coronavirus. You know, you've hit upon one, based on our reporting, you've hit upon one of the greatest sort of life disappointments of Robert Redfield, the CDC director. We learned that he while a really a staunch supporter of the president and a fan of his, um, interestingly enough, uh, had repeatedly tried to encourage the president to wear a mask. They knew the research. He, the health secretary, the uh, the FDA, they all the NIH director. They all knew masks worked. Um, despite the stutter step of Tony Fauci in the beginning, mm -hmm. where he was sort of on the fence about whether or not they were that important, or whether they should be recommended to the American public en masse. All of them knew masks made a difference. And they also knew the power of the presidency to make a difference. If he wore one, whether or not it benefited him, it would benefit the world. Redfield said that, uh, said to many of his aides, I can't get him to do it. And then he started basically to go to a good friend of his, a fellow um, military doctor, Sean Conley, who was the White House physician and Donald Trump's doctor, and said, Sean, please, you know, please talk to your patient. If, if you could just get him to wear the mask, it's bad for him, no matter what, no matter how much we do 
to protect him. It's bad for him, but it's even worse for America. And Redfield ultimately concluded, you know, privately confiding to others that this cost American lives, thousands of them. And again, one of his biggest disappointments, he could not break through. Conley told Redfield, you know, I'm sorry, you know what it's like, Bob. You have patients who don't listen to you. I've tried. And Mark Meadows told Redfield and others, no way, he's not wearing a mask. It will hurt him too much with his base. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump said to many people, including Redfield, you know, I'm told that uh, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't look good. It, it, it makes me look weak. People tell me it makes me look weak. And that's what he told Phil and me when we went to see him. The cover of your book, um, it depicts uh, Donald Trump tearing off the mask and that iconic moment after he came back from the hospital when he contracted the coronavirus and he does that uh, that photo op on the on the White House ba- balcony. I mean, that that seemed I mean, obviously, you guys chose that or somebody chose that to be the cover of your book as 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 one of the representative moments, Phil. I mean, that that moment really does capture the year perfectly, I think. Well, I'm so glad to hear you say that. Uh, you know, it was a collective decision uh, by by Carol and me and and our our terrific uh, publishing team at Penguin Press to to choose that photo. And we thought it illustrated uh, not only the president's resistance to science and expertise during the pandemic, but just his general uh, defiance that became so pronounced through the year 2020 uh, on the racial protests on the campaign and certainly the aftermath of the election. It just captured. Um, you know, Trump rejecting rejecting the truth in, in many respects, and so um, you know we were we were happy with that as as our as the cover image, and we think it it it's, it can be sort of an iconic uh, moment that that illustrates so much of what was catastrophic about 2020. So, how do you explain his attitude toward vaccines right now? Because this seems to be a paradox since the vaccines were developed and, and uh, under on his watch under Operation Warp Speed, he he could legitimately you know stake a claim to um, the the vaccines. And yet his base is clearly increasingly vaccine skeptical, obviously, except for the last few days, some Republicans apparently got got the bat signal that maybe they shouldn't uh, joke around about all of this. But so what is his position on on the on the vaccines? How is how is he straddling that line? He had the vaccine himself. Melania had the vaccine. He claims he's in favor of it. And yet, clearly, he's doing little or nothing to change the attitude of his his supporters. So what is Donald Trump thinking about vaccines now? I'm so glad you asked this, Charlie, because it, it, it shows why this is not just a history book, but a current events book, yeah. right? Um, there is no, this is a paradox, there is no consistency to the president and the former president's uh, position. Donald Trump's position on this has changed quite a bit and waffled. But there is a, um, absolutely a pattern and a rhyme and a reason to to this that is consistent with the way he behaves, which is, what does my base want? I will right. feed them what they want. I mean, he said uh, over and over again during his presidency, get this vaccine, do it now, hell or high water, I want it before the election. He couldn't have said that more times privately to his FDA director, who he was constantly pressuring, to his NIH folks, to his health secretary, Alex Azar. I mean, to the point that 
Defense Secretary Mark Esper was worried when he got the early reports that the vaccine in development and under trial had great efficacy. He was worried about Donald Trump learning that for fear that the hmm. president would order that people get injected before the, the darn thing was fully vetted and, and assuredly safe. Um, on the, on the, by the same token, here, the president t- tells us in the interview that he believes he's personally responsible for the vaccine. And you're right. He deserves credit for the pressure he put on the system to get it done. Now he's sowing distrust by saying he totally understands why people distrust mm-hmm. the vaccine. And that's not helpful to public health. Here's the consistency with Donald Trump. He's doing what benefits him the most. And as he w- did so as his as president, he's putting American lives in jeopardy, again, for his own political fortune. So, Phil, this, this seems to be the kind of the key to understanding Donald Trump is that e- even though he portrays himself as this very strong leader, that there's a really strong element of followership that that he sits there when he watches television or listens to talk radio. He has his antenna out there. He does know what his base is thinking, what they will accept and what they won't ac- accept. And so to that extent, rather than being the guy that tells them what to think, he often you know, is reacting, isn't he? I mean, Donald Trump is in tune with the base and is very unwilling to have any separation between himself and his own base. That's such a perceptive point, uh, Charlie, because Mm -hmm. you're you're right. It's not that Trump is leading his base. It's that Trump is uh, an incredible, voracious consumer of news and of social media and has an antenna for what his Mm -hmm. base wants to hear and wants to see him do. And he also, by the way, has a few advisors or had a few advisors around him who had a similar feel for the base and who could could help sort of guide him. Stephen Miller was one of them, Dan Scavino, another one of them. But, you know, if you're someone like Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity, you have extraordinary influence over Mm -hmm. Donald Trump and what he's thinking and doing because Trump would sit in front of the television and watch their shows on Fox. And he thought that they were the spokespeople for his MAGA Mm -hmm. coalition. And, you know, if Tucker said, you've got to send troops into the streets of of Portland, then by golly, Trump is going to be determined to send troops into the streets of Portland uh, to deal with with the protesters. And, you know, a lot of people think that Trump could just say anything and the base would follow. But it Oftentimes he was afraid to try to guide the base in a direction where he didn't think they already were. And so it would have been so easy, for instance, for President Trump to have led on immigration reform and come up with some sort of a solution uh, on immigration that would include border security, but that would also uh, kind of end what has been a decades long stalemate here in Washington on immigration law and policy. And yet he would and he tried a couple of times. He, he got close mm-hmm. and yet was always afraid of, of taking that step and actually doing it because he thought the base would revolt. And so it's really the base leading Trump. So give me your sense. You, you sat down, you, the two of you sat down with him in Mar-a-Lago in this extraordinary scene where he's in the lobby. I, I can't get over the fact that he's doing these interviews in the lobby of the club and people are coming up and kissing the ring while he's talking to you and everything. And he's been doing this with all of the, the writers of the various books. Do you have a sense, 
is is he going to run again? I mean, his base clearly wants him to. He's clearly attuned to all of that. So do you have a sense? Does he even have a sense? Does he know what he wants to do, Carol? You know, we're not in the business of um, speculating. Forgive me. Let me just say, <laughs> we were also stunned by the way that this was in a lobby. I remember when we walked in, I said, Phil, really? Are you sure? Um, and indeed, that's exactly where he positioned us and everyone else, largely because, you know, it appeared he wanted us to be seen. He wanted to be seen as as the man people come to see the the man people want the the great oracle right but um i just can't wait for the movie by the way i can't (laughs) wait for the movie of all of this i as i'm reading this i have to just say i keep thinking is this a movie is this going to be a mini series what is it going to be because you have to have something like that just to capture the strangeness and the bizarre nature and the drama of it all yes there are many many, no that's all right the Mm -hmm. the whole scene was was riveting, including the standing ovation he received when after our two and 45 minute, two hour and 45 minute interview, the standing ovation he received as he walked out onto the patio, all his club members and the hail to the chief. It's, it's really an interesting, um, Elba or Brigadoon. But back to your good question, Charlie, uh, we don't speculate about what's going to happen in the future as journalists, but what, Phil and I took away from that conversation was he sounds like he's running. Um, He talked a lot about uh, the amazing um, support he has among Republicans. He speaks about himself in third person. He talks about 97%. They love Trump. Um, And he is, uh, again, entertaining the idea that he would run very much so. And in the question that Phil asked him about whether or not he would commit to to running with Vice President Pence as his running mate, um, <laughs> he said he couldn't really commit to that right now. Um, but it's a free country. And if um, Pence wanted to run against him, well, that's just fine. Uh, he said it kind of as if good luck with that. Yeah. So Phil, you have any sense? You know, it it certainly looks like if Trump had to make a decision tomorrow about running for president again, he would say yes. But, you know, he doesn't have to make that decision for another two years, really. Um, and two years is a really long time when you're 75 years old. So who knows how his health is going to hold up? Who knows if he's going to still have the fire in the belly uh, to get out there and run? But he certainly sees advantages in making people think he's going to run sure, because it keeps him relevant. It, it keeps his businesses financed. It keeps his political operation uh, getting money in the door. And those are all good things if you're Donald Trump. And the moment he says he's not running, um, all of that dynamic changes. He becomes less exactly relevant. Right. Uh, the, the, the money drives up. No, the, the, the scene that you're describing down in Mar-a-Lago is, is so extraordinary. It is a little bit Norma Desmond, um, you know, the, you know, the, the, the former president sitting, holding court in the lobby of the country club and then having the, uh, having the, uh, the standing ovation. It, it, it is a reminder how thirsty he is for uh, adulation, how much he really, really, how needy he is for that sort of thing. But, there's just something kind of bizarre and pathetic about a former president of the United States down there in Mar-a-Lago. But, you know, clearly he's living, you know, he's he's surrounded by people um, who tell him how wonderful he is. I mean, he he has he he continues to exist in that bubble, doesn't he? Uh, the bubble of, uh, of of adulation and people who are constantly telling him how wonderful he is and coming and kissing the ring. So, you know, he's he's still living his best life, isn't he? 
he's he's almost like he it's like he's still president down there and on that beautiful piece of property between the lake and the sea uh, in Palm Beach. You know, Phil and I watched a stream of people come through for the dinner hour um, and each of them sort of gleeful in their way uh, at, at a sighting of Donald Trump and waving gently and carefully. Um, Kimberly Gifoyle standing nearby, <laughs> just sort of, you know, I would guess tiptoeing towards our little uh, a gathering to try to tell him how glad she was to see him and also beseech him to come over to her table later and uh, meet her friends. She said, you know, they're just great supporters of Donald Trump. And he said he would. Then Laura Ingraham pops by, you know, as if it's all a nice little clam bake and calls out to Donald Trump over the sofas, you know, you've got to tune in, Donald, tomorrow night. I'm going to have the, I'm going to take it to the doctors. She meant that on her program the next Great. night, she was going to be criticizing, of course, uh, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, and Dr. Redfield, who had just done a um, program explaining how painful it was to try to respond to the pandemic um, with a lot of the roadblocks that President Trump threw up against that. Oh, my goodness. And didn't Dane Crenshaw show up too? Congressman Dan Crenshaw? He, did. he sure did. Oh, great. That, that's, that, and, that is wonderful. And he sucked up to Trump too. He, he said, you're looking so good. What, what's your secret? <laughs> oh, man. The book is I Alone Can Fix It, Donald J. Trump's Catastrophic Final Year by Pulitzer Prize winning authors Carol Lennig and Philip Rucker. It is a riveting, riveting read. You think you know what happens, but uh, this really is the definitive account of the year, including this minute-by-minute account of what really went on during the Capitol in the White House on January 6th. Uh, extraordinary job. Congratulations to both of you, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Charlie. Charlie, thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again. <laughs>